I'm Rob. And I'm Nate. And welcome back to Rob and Nate Record a Podcast and week two of our Alfred Hitchcock theme month. Indeed. So for week number two, we are doing the 1943 film Shadow of a Doubt, which is a film that I'm quite partial to, but I believe this was the first time that Rob had seen it. In its entirety. I saw the first probably 15, 20 minutes of it at least once before. Mm-hmm. It was That part of it was familiar. But yeah, this is the first time seeing this in its entirety. Early thoughts. Uh, you came in with almost no expectation, as, as is your practice. Well, I mean, other than Alfred Hitchcock, yeah. there are and expectations the, that go with that. And the, and the segment that you hadn't realized you'd seen before until we started the movie. Yeah, it's good. It's, it weaves quite the tale. There are certain assumptions made in weaving that tale, but that's not a problem. It is, I, I think, very well put together. I mean, even the existence of a largely periphery character such as Herb yeah. ends up being absolutely vital to the whole thing. Yeah, This is a film that's kind of a personal favorite of mine. There's a time in which I probably would have said that it's my favorite Hitchcock film. Really? I'm not sure what I would call my favorite Hitchcock film at this point. I don't believe I've seen enough of his canon to make that determination outside of just the sentimental favorite that we already watched. Hitchcock himself, this was arguably his favorite of his own films and certainly his most American film by his own admission. He came about with the idea that he wanted to introduce terror to a small town. And they kind of built the story around that basic concept. And one thing that's really interesting about the film is that it has three screenwriters, two of whom are women. His life, Alma Reville, and a Sally Benson, best known for Meet Me in St. Louis. She wrote the source material for that. And then Thornton Wilder of Our Town fame was brought in for this small town America story which is filmed largely on location in Santa Rosa, California. And Hitchcock stayed there during production, and he really kind of fell in love with the community. And Santa Rosa today is, is going to be nothing like it is in this film. I mean, here it is, fairly small town. Yeah. And I love the fact that everybody knew, knows everybody in this movie. Santa Rosa was... Uh, homaged actually this film was homaged in a coen brothers film from 2001 called uh, the man who wasn't there which is also sentenced set in santa rosa in the 1940s is shot in black and white and a large plot element concerns an odd relationship between a grown man and a teenage girl so the basic plot of shadow of the doubt has to do with charlie newton played by Teresa wright who is named after her mother's only brother charlie Oakley. Oakley, who is played by Joseph Cotton. And they have this sentimental attachment to each other. Teresa Wright's character is 19-year-old, just out of high school, but not going to college. She's kind of listless. This film, actually, it doesn't sit out and tell you the date, but by implication, it's early 1941. Because they make a comment about 1888 being 53 years earlier. And then we see a newspaper clipping that says January 1941. So I, I like that it. I like things that are placed very specifically in time. Anyway, she's she's listless. She gets this idea that she should send a telegram to her uncle that they need the uncle to bring to some come excitement. Visit. Yeah. yeah, come visit. 
And coincidentally, they receive a telegram from the uncle about this time saying, I'm going to come to visit. But what uh, they don't know is that he's on the run because he is, in fact, the Mary Widow murderer, has killed three women in the East Coast to take their belongings, made himself a wealthy man, and is being pursued by some police detectives. So he manages to evade them long enough to get to Santa Rosa. But somehow they track him down. They're also tracking another suspect in the Northeast. And the film is about Charlie's growing suspicion of Charlie. Yeah. Both ways around. Yeah. And what really makes this movie work, and, and the movie has has a lot of things that support it, which is the, the wonderful small town setting. It is, this is a film that's not in a hurry, that you can take a stroll around, which is something I absolutely adore in films. It's got some wonderful sporting characters including Henry Travers, Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life, but with his hair all dyed. But it's the dynamic between the two Charlies that make this movie work. And I, I was thinking, or I had mentioned earlier that I saw a film the other weekend called Class of 1984, which is starts out as an inspiring teacher movie, and by the end it becomes Die Hard. And it's kind of exploitive trash, but it works because of the relationship between the two leads, this uh, inspiring teacher and this hoodlum kid, the way they kind of circle around each other. They're perfect foils for each other. And these two balance each other so well that it's just so satisfying to see their interactions, especially after about the halfway mark. The scene in the bar is when this yeah. film really goes from about a three, three and a half star into four star land in, in my mind. But I've been rambling about this for a while. You have some additional thoughts to share about Shadow of a Doubt. Hmm. Where do I want to go with this? Yeah, this film is... I like the way that it's constructed. It also has a couple of odd plot elements, like the detective who comes to town who suddenly is infatuated and in love with with Charlie, mm. you know. and it, Yeah, the, that part was kind of a little bit odd, but... It's a little bit of a concession to filmmaking at the time. Yeah. And you, 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 these kind of relationships get compressed and sped up in films. Yeah. I kind of wanted to see Charlie Newton, the Teresa Wright character, do something more deliberate towards the end of the film in terms of her uncle. Hmm. Though that part where she sneaks into his room and finds the ring, you know, and is, that's the ruse that gets him to leave town, that, that was great. She got a wonderful arc and wonderful character development. Yeah, but she threatens to kill him. And so I would have liked to have seen her do something more deliberate for how the film actually ends. And, you know, we're a spoiler cast. Charlie, Charlie Oakley, played by Joseph Cotton, tricks the kids into coming onto the train. And just as the younger of the children are realizing it's about time for the train to leave and start to run to get off the train, he physically restrains her to keep her on the train, waits for the train to, to get up to speed, and tries to push her off the train, but she's able to reverse the situation and push him off right in front of an oncoming train. Like I said, I, after she threatens to kill him, I would have liked to, for the film to have ended with something more deliberate, but that's very minor yeah. quibbling. Well, also, this is kind of a, you know, she's expressing her frustration, but she's not really in a position to do that and I don't think she ever actually would kill him I don't think that that was in her but it was her way of threatening him and, and explaining yeah. her, her her rage and the the, the growth of, of this character she goes from worshiping the ground he he, he walks, walks on, on yeah to this gradual realization 
at first that something's wrong, and then when the police detective played by McDonald uh, Carey, Jack Graham, has, who, who's the, the love interest, tells yeah. her what's up, and at first she's like, no, 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 and she he, he tells her, it's like, if you thought that he did it, you would help me. She's like, I, I would not. And she, he has her right. Like, yeah. she's, a, she's a good girl. She's a smart girl. That might even be... It's not really a, a, a plot hole, but it's intriguing because she's the valedictorian of her class. She's just sitting at home. Yeah. It's like, it's just no, no apparent plans. And I can see why she was restless. And ironically, Uncle Charlie did deliver the goods. Yeah. Uh, things got uh, got much more interesting after his arrival. Well, but it, that also is never... His plot line is never revealed to the town because the film ends on this hero's funeral, funeral for yeah. him. You know, I'm not sure how things got explained in that situation, but another character in this movie that I loved, that we both loved, was Hume Cronin playing Herbie Hawkins. Yes. The next door neighbor who, along with Joel, Joe is just obsessed with murder and ways to kill people. Yeah, Joe being uh, Henry Travers' character, yeah. uh, Charlie's father. Yeah. yeah, they're always talking about murder and how they would murder each other. It's just kind of their game. Yeah. And it's an interesting kind of but, contrast. But Herbie, Herb ends up foiling one of Charlie's attempts to kill Charlie. Yeah. Like, Herb, yeah. Herb is the only reason... Like, if Herb hadn't been... This is one of the things I love about the way the film was structured. Because he's always busting in on them at night. Much uh, or moderately to the annoyance of Charlie's mother. And he just... he's You know, he's coming by to visit. And then he, he hears panic from the garage where uh, the older Charlie has, has tricked her into suffocating herself. That's his plan. Yeah. He's got the car running. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, if he hadn't been around, uh, Uncle Charlie would have gotten away with it. Yeah. Come, turning up the radio, everything to cover all the no yeah. any possible noise coming from the garage. Yeah, it's, it's... This movie has quite a few twists and turns. I mean, she finds out... What's that scene where she goes to the library? That's what? Pretty close to the halfway point? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, so she knows by about halfway through the movie. And there's a whole other half of the movie where they're trying, you know, he's just trying to evade. So the, the pivotal scene in this movie is the bar scene where she's figured out that her uncle is the Mary Widow murderer. And she just, she's just having a hard time suppressing it. The Uncle Charlie's picked up that she knows something's up. And so when she kind of storms out after dinner, he follows her. And basically force, forcefully takes her into this bar to have this confrontation in which, uh, is this where the, the ring is introduced? No, that's where the, the waitress yeah. sees the ring. And I freaking well, love this waitress. The ring's been introduced previously and she notices the initials and he tries to take it back. But she won't let him. And when she reads the article in, in the paper, so, so, you know, evening papers, Uncle Charlie sees there's an article about the Mary Widow murderer. So she, he pretends that he's building a paper house for the younger children as an excuse to, to mess up the newspaper and tear out the article. And so when Teresa figures out there's he's hiding something from the paper, she goes to the library that night just at closing time in order to, to see what's up. And there's an article about the Mary Widow murderer and about his most recent victim has the same initials that are on this uh, ring. And that's when she realizes what's up. That's when it, it starts to really overtly affect her behavior. She stays in her bedroom yeah. this whole day. And then, then uh, you know, when Uncle Charlie brings her into the bar, 
and basically is what do you know and and they get to be where they they know or how do you know and that's where she sets the ring on the table yeah yeah Mm -hmm. but there's this wonderful side character which is this girl who charlie went to high school with who is the least enthusiastic barmaid who even makes this side comment about uh, i've worked in half the restaurants in town is like less than a year after they've graduated yeah and she's kind of got this i never thought i'd see you at a place like this miss stuck up stuck up and i just love that she is in this movie for about two minutes and she's got this entire character developed yeah and a, a lot of these these uh small town people you get a sense of their character they kind of the stuffy boss the the clergyman who who really builds up Uncle Charlie, even the freaking telegram lady is great in, yeah. in that brief sequence. So yeah. I love a film where the world feels lived in and fleshed out, and you can just touch on other people's stories. I also uh, this is just a very brief tangent. I enjoyed the uh, jokes when Charlie goes to the bank for the first time. Oh. All the jokes about embezzlement. You take yeah. a moment away from embezzling to help yeah. me out. Yeah. Uh, my boss is really the like month, those who jokes. Cares if the numbers don't yeah. align perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what do you know about uh, What do you know about our cast? What do you know about Joseph Cotton or Miss Wright? Uh, not a lot. So Teresa Wright came from a fairly wealthy, I want to say, Connecticut family, and so she didn't need to act. So she was somewhat selective in what she uh, would do uh, on screen. And she had a period in right around the war years uh, that was very prolific for her. Uh, she was in some really classic movies where she was in this. She was in another film. She was in Pride of the Yankees with Gary Cooper. Yeah. Uh, she was in Mrs. Miniver right around this same time, which was an Oscar-winning film. And then she was in another Oscar-winning film to kind of round out the war, The Best Years of Our Lives. And she continued to act for throughout most of her life and the film you probably know her from without realizing you know her from it is the rainmaker from the late 90s with matt damon where she is the elderly woman who rents matt damon a room oh okay yeah she was married twice once to a novelist and once to a playwright so she had a type so she acted clear through in 1997 yeah wow that's quite the career and then joseph cotton was part of orson welles Mercury Theater on the Air came with Wells to Hollywood in 1940-ish and stayed on, continued to work into the, at least into the 80s, possibly even into the early 90s. He was in Citizen Kane. He was in Soylent Green was one of his last films. He was in The Third Man, which is a great film with Orson Welles. Did a number of uh, kind of horror films later in his career, as, as many actors of that era ended up doing. He's got a great presence He's so smooth, and he's just wonderful the way that he interacts with Charlie because you kind of want to like him, and you kind of even do like him, even though he's a he's a murderer. And you can get how he charms people and how he's able to make a go out of the lifestyle that, that he ended up pursuing. Now, they do try to kind of justify him, where they talk about the childhood injury on the bicycle and that he concocted his head concussed his head yeah and was never quite the same after that and he became much more mischievous afterwards and so it's kind of given him an out i guess they're trying to explain why his mother his sister is so sweet and he's so bad 
Another thought that has been brought up about this film, which is, is Uncle Charlie a metaphor for fascism? I don't know. It's because he, he has this the, this conversation he, he has at the dinner table where he's talking about the widows, fat, ugly widows, and they got their husband's money, and they don't deserve it. It's like, they're people, he aren't they? He riles himself up. He riles himself up, and he's he, he has this other conversation with with his niece where he talks about you know the world's a hell the world's a pigsty if you were to take the the walls off these houses you'd see pigs and so there's certain i mean he he talks about other people the way the nazis talked about the jews okay yeah and he's he's outwardly very charismatic but not that far under the surface because it doesn't really take that that much for him to start to show his true colors i mean yeah. he, he covers it enough for most people but if you're really paying attention like his niece is you see that there's just something wrong about this guy. Well, and, and he's pretty smooth. Like the things like when Charlie gets locked in the garage and the the thing is foiled and he goes in and, and helps drag her out. Then he makes his way to the car and reinserts the key. Charlie says that she tried turning the ignition off, but there was no key. And he's like, well, it was there when, when I turned when I it there. off. And then when she comes to and the first thing he says to her is go away. And so he gets up and gets his sister and says, she wants you. Like, like this is his spin on it. Oh, by saying going away, not because she hates me, because she wants her mom. Yeah. And so he's pretty good at improvising along the way. And, and he covers things up just well enough, like the broken stair. Hmm. Yeah, his various attempts to, to, to have her accidentally kill herself. Yeah. So that, that, that last half, last third of the film is where it shines. It, it, it. Well, and it picks up tempo, It picks too. up tempo quite a bit. Not that the tempo is problematic throughout the rest of the film. Yeah, the early yeah. half of the film is not, is not as good. As I was re-watching this for the first time in probably around 10 years, I'm like, oh, this doesn't have the same vip mm-hmm. that that I remembered. And then once they had the bar scene, I'm like, okay, there it is. That's what's lodged in my mind, is, is yeah. that tone from the later half of the film. It's a great movie. When was the first time you saw this? I can't entirely remember. I think sometime in the early 2000s. Okay. So not that long ago, mm-hmm. but yeah. How many times do you think you've seen oh, this? Oh, probably around a half dozen. Yeah. So probably every, what, three, four years? Yeah, but I have, uh, well, maybe even more than that, but I haven't, I don't think I've seen it in about 10 years. Yeah, this is definitely a good film. This is one that I'll have to come back to. You know, I'll be watching for a copy of this to pop up somewhere. But yeah, this was definitely good. I'm glad that we watched this. Again, the challenge of this month is how do you consolidate 50 years of Hitchcock? Hitchcock down into four films. Yeah, you yeah. don't. You just choose and, four. And and so I think we're going to have four fairly high high marks, you know, going for us. But Hitchcock is pretty consistent though too. So, what yeah. would you rate this film? I would give this three and a half stars out of mm-hmm. on the four star scale, and I'd give it nine stars on the ten star scale. I would also give it nine stars on the ten star scale. I was going back and forth between three and a half and, and four stars, and I think the weight of my sentimental attachment to the film pushes it up to the four stars for me. Well, it's definitely good. Yeah, what other th- thoughts do you have on this one? I guess we should go to some of our typical budget box office stuff. Oh, we're not going to have accurate yeah, numbers here. Yeah, have accurate stuff on something from this far far back. It definitely was a success. Hitchcock films generally were at this time. 
Yeah, one of the things that we've also mentioned previously about Hitchcock is the witty dialogue. This has some witty dialogue, but perhaps not as much as some of his other films. Mm. But yeah, it's still witty and, yeah, and well smart. written. Yeah. So, any other thoughts on this one? Okay. Well, I'm Rob. And I'm Nate. And this is Rob and Nate Record a Podcast. I'm curious to see now. Well, considering your Jody Foster's brother reference earlier, mm-hmm. now that we're watching Alfred Hitchcock this month, I'm kind of curious to see what kind of Hitchcockian references you yeah. come up with. Yeah, I didn't really... I thought about looking into this, refreshing myself on this earlier today, but I wanted to come in fairly fresh yeah, on it. it run. I did reread the review, so uh, I got a Alfred Hitchcock set. I, I was in a, a minor car... Did I ever mention this? I was, of course, in a much bigger car accident later or later on, but I was in a fender bender, and I had enough leftover money to buy this Alfred Hitchcock box set. And so when I went through the films in it, I wrote reviews of it, even even ones that I'd seen before on my blog back in like 2007. Yeah. And so I reread my review of it, and I kept it kept reminding me of points I wanted to make. I'm like, this is a really perceptive writer. That's exactly what... <laughs> Exactly what I thought about this film. They just put it in words for me. <laughs> Maybe I should have looked up your blog post on this. Do you have that box set down here? No, I don't. It's it's back mm-hmm. up in Boise. It's got a it's got a wonderful uh, velvety material on it and the Hitchcock profile and it's yeah. a nice set. Yeah, I think Hitchcock is. I know I've got a few Hitchcock films in my collection. But that's an area where I need to collect some more. Yeah, I think I've seen most everything of his American films. Yeah. With the exception of Under Capricorn, which you can't get. It's, like, impossible to find. Yeah. Because yeah. apparently it sucks. What's the one... Well, never mind. We'll figure that out at some point in the future. Yeah, some of my Hitchcock um, memories, or early Hitchcock memories, my mo- mother's parents, so my maternal grandparents... Ended up moving to Beaver Dam, Arizona, which is just south of St. George, Utah. And so we would go down a couple times a year to go visit them. Eventually, we figured out a way to rig up an inverter and a TV in the car. And we watched movies on the way down. Mm. But an early attempt of my parents to entertain us while we were driving to my grandparents' house was to just put in Alfred Hitchcock tapes. Mm. Well, being as it was like a four-hour drive... It was very common for us to leave at the end of the day. Like as soon as my dad got off work, we got in the car and we were on the road. But it meant that we were driving through the St. George area and through the Virgin River Gorge in the dark. And I can remember numerous times listening to an Alfred Hitchcock tape, you know, which they're scary stories and stuff. Mm -hmm. Driving through this scary scene of the Virgin River Gorge in the dark. And Yeah. yeah. I mean, I enjoy that memory, but it, there was a couple times I scared the crap out of me. <laughs> the canyon killer. Oh, no, no, not this one, Dad. There's one where, like, there's a guy that hides in people's basements and kills them. Mm-hmm. I remember that one in particular. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways. Did you know that uh, the first draft of uh, Elton John's song, Benny and the Jets, was extremely profane? No. Yeah, it was called Lenny Has Tourette's. <laughs> Where do you come up with these? Again, it's defective brain. <laughs>
I don't know if I'd call that detective, <laughs> but it's something. <laughs> Alright. Okay. It's going to be a little bit of a tonal shift, I think. I, I've got to recompose. 